I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Clark. I'm Nancy Durrance. And I'm Nick Curtis. Coming up on today's show... We'll be reviewing Harold Pinter's The Homecoming at the Young Vic. Perhaps it's not such a bad idea to have a woman in the house. Perhaps it's a good thing. Who knows? Maybe we'll keep her. Maybe we'll ask her if she wants to stay. This is directed by Matthew Dunster and stars Jared Harris, Lisa Devenny and Joe Cole. And for our second review, it's Infinite Life at the National Theatre. That's by American playwright Annie Baker, directed by James MacDonald, who also directed Lucy Kirkwood's The Welkin at the National in 2020. Plus, we're joined by Hattie Morahan at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse. I am so enjoying being on stage doing this play. In fact, Paul Hilton and I were messaging each other last night, sort of going, I'm pinching myself. This space is particularly a happy one to play. It's just pure theatre. You haven't got the bells and whistles of technology and it's just people in a room listening to a story. Hattie stars in Henrik Ibsen's Ghosts, directed by Joe Hill Gibbons. Welcome back to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Before we kick off, if you've not yet done so, then please do hit follow on the podcast. That way you'll be alerted every week when a new episode lands. And drop us an email if you want to over at theatrepod at standard.co.uk. Right, what's been happening this week? Well, the best news, Red Pitch, our fave, is, uh, is finally being transferred from the bush to the West End. Yeah, great which, news. Oh, such good news, isn't it? It's so good. It's at Soho Place. Um, which is Nika Burns Theatre and I think probably the only place in the West End it would really have worked, don't you think? It's sort of perfect because it's in the, yes, the original production at the Bush was in the round. It's set, you know, they they basically turned the theatre into a football pitch. The only place in the West End that you could turn into a football pitch would be at Soho Place, as you say. This not only won Most Promising Playwright for um, Terrell Williams Williams last year, it was nominated for Best Play, which I think is the only time that that's happened. One of the stars of it, Francis Lovehall, was nominated for Emerging Talent. And I sat next to Francis Lovehall at the kiln for two strangers carrying a cake across New York. And he said to me, you will be hearing more about Red Pitch soon. Yeah, so that's that was... And he is a real talent to watch. I think we'll be seeing a lot more of him on TV as well as on, on yeah. stage. But I mean, this is just a, a wonderful play. It is about football, but it's about friendship and yeah. gentrification and community and all these things. And it really just knits it all together. It's so extraordinary for a first time playwright. I can't so rich, how good it is. so detailed, and such good football in it as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's true. Headlines rejoice. Yeah. I'm really glad pun. to see that the original cast, which includes Francis Lovehall, but also Kadar Williams Sterling and Emeka Sese, who is in The Book of Clarence, a recent film. Um, and uh, The Power as well, the Amazon TV show by Naomi uh, Alderman. Alderman. Alderman, yeah. yeah. So I'm really pleased that they're coming back in, in those roles because they were just brilliant. It's a sort of football takeover of the West End, isn't it? It is. With it Deer is England. The Deer England. Well, yeah. well, if Deer England is international football at the top of the footballing pyramid, this is yeah. very much uh, those at the bottom with aspirations and hopes of getting a trial I at know, QPR. Exactly. Yeah. It's, so. it's, I think it's, it's worth mentioning. It's produced by Nika Burns, obviously, and Adam Kenwright, and also Chuchu Nwagu, who... Chuchu, I think, is quite interesting. Um, his is a black-led production company, and part of their focus 
is to make sure that their new writing projects are led by underrepresented voices. And I think it's really cool, basically, that a company like that is kind of becoming a power player in the West End. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think so it's we're wonderful. all very excited and you should yeah. all buy tickets. And I think it's coming in Feb. I think that's right. Yes. Yeah. And the other news mm. is Waiting for Godot. Oh. You yeah, need I wait no longer. Oh, my God. <laughs> ben Wishaw and Lucian Masmati uh, coming in uh, in a production directed by James McDonald, who uh, directed Infinite Life. I so. mean, it's such fantastic casting, isn't it? It is great, yes. You wouldn't want to see those, those two. And I, then the charisma on that stage is going to oh. be outrageous. It's going to be really interesting. I mean, the last time it was done in the West End, it was uh, Ian McKellen and um, uh, Patrick Stewart sort of mm. furthering yes. there. Romance, having done, uh, you know, they, they did No Man's Land together mm. and, uh, mm. you know, sundry other projects. But um, it's been a long time since we've seen a, a big god. It'll be interesting to see how how this casting makes it, well, you know, land. I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen Waiting for Godot. I mean, wow. it's so this, and, but I can't think of two better actors I'd, I'd rather see it with, I've got to say. <laughs> I mean, I love Beckett's writing. I remember, for me, the, the show that really stands head and shoulders so much is um, Crap's Last Tape, mm. which I saw in 2017 um, at the Edinburgh International Festival with Barry McGovern. Oh, wow. And okay. It was just mind-blowing. I was sat there sort of glued to my seat. I could hardly get up at the end. It was just extraordinary. Yeah. And so I think, you know, obviously... Waiting for Godot is, is it, we're talking bringing in the big guns here so I can't I wait to see that and really experience it for the first time I think oh. I've only ever seen it I think that I've only ever seen it on screen there was a film version and I, I don't know why I actually don't know which film version it was it was quite a long time ago I saw it at the ICA but before that I read it the nothing that happens made me so so angry but then I saw it in real oh, on screen or in real life whichever it was and it totally blew me away which I think partly goes to show just how much performance adds to play mm. <laughs> you know and yeah. I think people don't realize like just how much of the magic comes from the moment when it's you know happening but I think it also sort of slightly crystallized my thoughts about theater and art in general which is that it should alter your equilibrium and if it makes you angry that's not necessarily a bad that's thing a for it to, for a way to it to act upon you there's I that thought, famous yeah. review of it that it's a play in which nothing happens twice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it also it, it won the, uh, the most controversial play in the very first evening standard theater awards back did in it? 1955 they didn't they didn't feel they could give a best play but they didn't feel that they could I mean I wasn't there I'm old enough to remember Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson doing Waiting for Godot at what was then the Queen's Theatre in the West End. Okay. Um, wasn't reviewing it. I was working for a tiny theatre magazine at that time. I took a journalist friend of mine who was a news producer of Channel 4. We looked at each other at the interval and went, pint? <laughs> 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 Not all productions of Waiting for Godot are equal. Yeah. But no, this one, true. I think we'll look forward to very much. And this one's coming to the Theatre Hall Haymarket in September. Yep. So exciting. Right, let's get stuck into our first review. This is The Homecoming at The Young Vic. You're in love anyway with another man. You've had a, a secret liaison with another man. His family didn't even know. Then you come here without a word of warning and start to make trouble. Have a sip. Go on. Have a sip from my glass. Sit on my lap. Take a long, cool sip. Put your head back. And open your mouth. Take that glass away from me. Lie on the floor. Go on, I'll pour it down your throat. What are you doing? Making me some kind of proposal? 
I've not matched, oh, I say I've not managed to see this one yet. I didn't manage to see it on press night. And from your review, it reminded me just how grim it is. So I'm not entirely <laughs> sure I'm going to see it. But why don't you tell me about it? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, an impeccable production of an important, but nonetheless deeply unpleasant play. It's from 1964. It's one of Harold Pinter's earliest, but it's it's a sort of uh, probably one of his more properly mature works when it wasn't just two people on a stage. It's about a philosophy professor bringing back the wife that he has not told his family about back from America to meet them. And they are a brutal and brutish all-male North London family. The father, Max, is a butcher. Mm. Uncle Sam is a chauffeur and the sort of gentlest character on stage and is therefore mocked for his presumed homosexuality because this is an absolutely testosterone-fueled crowd who are sort of constantly at each other as well. The other two sons, one's a boxer and one's essentially a pimp. Yes, exactly. And an an incredibly violent pimp at that as well. Uh, So, yeah, Lenny, the the pimp character, is played by Joe Cole from uh, Peaky Blinders. And Gangs of London. And Gangs of London. And the the Ipcrest file. And the Ipcrest (laughs) file. Uh, Max, the father, is played by Jared Harris. From all the things. From all the things. It's slightly (laughs) shocking to me, you know, because I just about remember his dad acting. Yeah. (laughs) Now he's in the dad roles, but, you know, there you go. Happens Um, to us all, Nick. It does indeed. (laughs) And uh, Lisa Devenny from Call the Midwife is Ruth, the wife, who is brought back into this household. Mm. I mean, it's a a really disturbing play, isn't it? What did you think, It is. Well, uh, funny, it's the second week in a row that we really could have done with uh, Nancy's view because, uh, (laughs) I mean, it's the opposite of Bernardo Alba, which was an all-female household. Um, But this one is basically a show about what happens when a testosterone-fueled household of toxic masculinity is shorn of any female input at all and sort of rots and festers and becomes uh, this sort of seething claustrophobic pit. Basically just 1960s incels, aren't they? Yeah, uh, very, very much so. Yeah. And if I just rewind a little bit, this was the first Pinter I ever saw, um, the production that Jamie Lloyd did in the Travis yes. Studios in 2015. Yeah. Mm. I, just, I had previously had a sort of um, Pinter blind spot. I mean, there were all the old cliches, obviously, the pauses and all of that. But uh, funny enough, it was through my wife who worked for Pinter for mm. a little while, shortly before his death. And so when I met her and we were invited to things and, and you know, she talked about his work, I finally saw this show and I was totally amazed by the writing. I mean, mm. always these productions get an extraordinary cast. There was an extraordinary cast then, yeah. you know, from uh, Gemma Chan, John Sim, Gary Kemp, Keith Allen. And this cast here is a brilliant ensemble cast yeah. as well. And so you get great actors speaking these words. It's all misdirection. It's all talking about one thing, but meaning something else. It's violence of language without saying violent things, although they do also talk about violent things as well. Yeah, And it's so claustrophobic. Mm. Yeah. Even though the set's quite open, and I think that was, Pinter wrote it like that. Actually, I read this, the stage directions quite recently. But actually, even in this open set, there is this claustrophobic, it's sort of, the past is weighing in on everyone. The, it's, you know, it's, I think it's, yeah. a, it's a play about the impossibility of escaping your past or your nature, you know, one way or the other, isn't it? Um, and I think it's, it's very much to do with the way Pinter grew up. And it is the question of whether Teddy, the chap who has escaped, yes. whether he's going to get sucked back in or... If he's not going to get sucked back in, whether Ruth is going to get sucked back in. And what effect bringing a woman into this toxic environment will have on her, but also on them as well. Yeah. I mean, this is where I struggle with the play. And, you know, it's no spoiler, but just towards the end and what happens and her being pulled ever deeper into that family. It just left me scratching my head. Yeah. And I don't remember it from the 2015 production, the Jamie Lloyd production, which I understood the motivations a little bit more. I didn't really this time round. I think compared to previous uh, versions I've seen, there's there's always a problem of the lack of agency of Ruth, the female yeah. character. And I think in this one, she felt to me to have 
a lot more agency. The problem sure. is that the power is all on a sexual level. That the family try and mm. basically sexually intimidate. They just mm. harass her, basically. Yeah. And she responds in kind, belittles mm. them very successfully and basically exerts her sensual power over them. I thought Lisa Devaney was, was terrific in this, totally particularly agree. given that she's physically quite slight mm. and that's accentuated by a sort of very gamine crop that she's that her hair's been... It's very stylized in a 60s manner, isn't it? Yeah, and she's got, a, she's got an immaculate sort of 60s wardrobe which mm. really jars and contrasts against the sort of rather 50s style suits that the men are still in. You know, they, mm. they, are, they are very much definitely dinosaurs. They're yeah. still living in this immediate post-war era of sort of bomb sites and things well, like that. Well, Max, the father, talks about the World Wars and uses it as a stick yeah. to beat his brother with, essentially, by yeah. saying, you you didn't kill anyone in the war. Absolutely, and- yes, yeah. The absent character is Jessie, the mother. The mother, who yeah. Who is constantly initially eulogised as, you know, if your mother were here, you know, mm. they rather neatly they, they point to a rocking chair when they refer yes. to her because Max has his own armchair mm. and they've got a rocking chair, which is obviously... Her chair. But mm. gradually, you know, he starts, the language starts sort of decaying around her as well. And you hear Max sort of. Well, no, actually, really it starts and it, it starts with bile and then flips mm. back again. Yeah. Everything's used as a weapon to beat whoever they're talking about. So your mother wouldn't have, you know, whereas he's been sort of criticizing her himself. Jared Harris is superb, I think, in this role. But he is the sort of father railing against what is happening in the future about he, yeah. he's, he can't understand why his sons won't acknowledge him. Yeah. They literally will not talk to him or answer him. Mm. It is a world of violence, even if it's not every conversation. Yeah. You know, there are the threats to, I mean, Lenny is a particularly good character on that. You just think he could explode at any time. Yeah. He's, and, he's well played by Joe Cole, isn't he, with this oh, sort of suppressed his, springy energy. Yeah. And, has Joe Cole done much theatre? I don't think I've seen him in much. he's so. superb here. Yeah. Is you he? know, he's a, a real presence, I yeah. thought. You know, going up against Jared Harris. Yes. I mean, you know, and and you really do go up in this play. It's very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. And he absolutely holds his own. But you're right about um, Lisa Deveni, mm. who, again, absolutely stands out as well. She really, you know, did wonders with the part, I She thought. has a tremendous physicality in mm. it. There's a, the way she moves is very, very potent in this, I think, and yeah. just sort of hypnotises everyone on stage and everyone in the audience when she does it. Um, some critics I saw were saying that this was a naturalistic staging, which I didn't feel it was. No, I thought it was... It sort of operates on a slightly heightened notch, yeah. and the dialogue is heightened anyway. It's not. Yeah, yeah it's quite hard to do well, naturalistic. Every now and then, it'll flick into the lights change, yeah. and there's sort of discordant jazz music. Yes, and I know I didn't quite get what that signified. You know, there would be a sudden cut to, and it would focus the light on the character speaking, as if they'd stepped out of themselves, or if they were remembering something, or. And I didn't quite get that. I think it was just a sort of moment of focus. And right. I think it's almost like people like Robert Icke have been using drummers, you know, for, or um, mm. somebody else did it, didn't they? they Rebecca Fregnall. Yeah. Yes. The way they use percussion. I think mm. uh, this isn't, I think, a live, I don't know if it's a live percussionist actually, but mm. um, but I think that is just a focusing thing. I think that the lighting designer should have had a curtain call of their own. <laughs> I think the set yeah. looks wonderful. It really I, does. I, as I say, I think it's a, a really, really, really brilliant production of a, of a, quite challenging really horrible play, play. Yeah. you sort of play. come out feeling dirty yeah. <laughs> that's my that's my sort of why I haven't kind of like really mm. pushed to get to, yeah. to get to see it yet and I, sh- I I mean I know I know that I should and I, I and I would like to see the performances but it's that thing of you know even like within this universe there is no room for the woman to triumph in any way other than sexually and it's that exactly is that. frankly quite tiring yes <laughs> yeah. sexually or as a mother figure 
this split that you were talking about earlier, how they yeah. um, criticised and commended the mother yeah. figure, who's yeah. obviously not on the stage. Exactly the same happens with Ruth yes. as well. Totally your virgin whore yes. kind of yeah. You know, there's also thing. a sense it's, here that yeah. she has been trapped into motherhood. I think mm, yes. by Teddy, you know, mm. and that, that actually he's just as bad in his own way. In his own way, yeah. yes, that he sort of forced this upon her, and uh, and that she enjoyed some sort of weird free life, you know. But that's another thing. Teddy's response: I didn't. I, no, I don't really I think connect he's with the, that. He's the flaw that. in the play because he's a very insipid, you know, yeah. uh, passive character who just sort of accepts every development that's sort of thrown his way. As every, you say, the only time he argues yeah. is on a point of philosophy. Yes. One thing I would say about the reason to see this is that I do think it's an important play. The further away we get from sort of post-war theatre, the more I think Pinter is a more significant role in British theatre, even than Beckett or Osborne, mm. you know, the, all those, you know, early kitchen sink writers, Osborne mm. and Wesker. I think, you know, Beckett is, is, is significant in his own way, but I think Pinter really, really shook theatre out of its class complacency mm. and out of its realism, out of its hold on realism, mm. without totally letting go of it in a way that Beckett does. Yeah. And, so and, I think it's a fascinating period. And watching it in 2023, it draws a direct line to a lot of the debates around toxic masculinity now. I Absolutely. mean, it's, it's, you know, it is a really tough watch. I think just in terms of pure writing, this is the sort of ground, ground zero of where so much of British theatre came from. Yeah, yeah. You're probably right. All right. Well, in that case, fine, fine. <laughs> I'll bloody well go and see it. The oh homecoming <laughs> is on until January the 27th. Let's go to the ads. Coming up in part two, I'll be over at Shakespeare's Globe with Hattie Morahan for Ghosts inside the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Marisha Wallace, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theater Podcast. Welcome back to the Standard Theatre Podcast. With me today at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse next to Shakespeare's Globe is Hattie Morahan, who is appearing in Ghosts. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Very well, thank Good. you. Good. I'm sorry to drag you, <laughs> drag you to your workplace no, early in the morning. Um, for those who don't know the Wanamaker, it is the most extraordinary space. Yes. It's, it's, it's built of wood, as is, is the neighbouring Shakespeare's Globe, currently mirrored, so uh, you can see yourself behind the uh, the actors performing, and it's candlelit. This is, I think, the first time that Ibsen's been done at the yes. Wanamaker and at the Globe. Um, That's it's right. It's kind of interesting, kind of yeah. a new adventure. Uh, again, this doesn't come across well on audio, but the stage is covered in pink fur as well. <laughs> I know. Um, for those who don't know ghosts, yes. could you summarise it for us and your character? It's a five-hander and it's, I suppose it's a family drama, uh, the themes being inherited 
disease, secrets kept within families, um, incest rears its head. We have unhappy marriage. It wasn't a great success when he first wrote it mm. because, as I understand it, he thought it was his great follow-up to Doll's House, which had been a huge, you know, cause celebre across Europe. And yes. in those days, a success was measured by how many copies of the play you sold. And, of course, it, you know went like hotcakes off off the shelves and he was terribly excited so well wait wait <laughs> did you get my my follow-up and everyone was so scandalized by syphilis hmm. which was everywhere widespread but nobody talked about it so yes. it was nobody wanted anything to do with the play but what we've discovered and you know i mean it's it's become a sort of um recognized as a, as a great play but we've just you know it's structurally it's so brilliant it's funny it's shocking it's absurd it's heartbreaking I mean it's yeah I think it's a really exciting play I've always thought yeah. of it as uh, do you know that nursery rhyme about the little girl who had a little curl in the middle of her forehead yes. that when it's good it's very very good and when it's yes. bad it's horrid ghosts because there's a sort of horrible inevitability <laughs> yes. to it all the characters yes. are sort of locked onto this these tragic courses oh my goodness and yes. because it refers to things like syphilis and incest but can't do it openly it's all rather rather oblique and yes. a lot of sort of winking at the audience yeah. but this version is has been sort of subtly updated by the director mm. Joe Hill Gibbons hasn't, yeah. hasn't it is it easy to play how does it yes I think he's done a really great version mm. and people often say has he cut lots and he really hasn't um, we've just compressed it and I suppose we've played what would have been act breaks and possible intervals we play them right through and he has tweaked the text to allow it to play in real time so we don't stop for lunch or we don't you know we don't go out and look at there's a there's a fire that happens later yeah. spoiler alert and he just allows that action to play continuously so that that pressure is never let out of of the can as it were and um yeah i suppose the challenge is is the sharp corners that ibsen requires you to turn from a plot point of view the most extraordinary stuff happens <laughs> one after the other and you just it's very kind of to start with it feels quite challenging as an actor to to, to do those handbrake turns and not career completely off the off the track when you're sort of on top of it and you can relax it's totally exciting and, mm. and it's it's lovely to feel the ripples as it hits the audience and the, the, we get gasps you know yes. yeah you worked yeah. many times with katie mitchell as well yes. who was in the news this week for saying that she feels that um, female directors are given a, a raw mm. deal mm. or you know a sort of an unfair expectation or unfair right. criticism put on them do you have a view on that do you feel um, that there is a problem in the industry the from what I've read, from what I've, and I suppose speaking to her and working with her for that sort of period, I'm curious to know if things have changed. I feel like there was a particular era when she was making a lot of work that had a, had quite a wide platform and exposure at the National, for example, where I think there was still quite a bedrock of, I think she, she found, her perspective was that it was sort of older white male critics that's just yeah. you know what the establishment seemed to be at the time people who'd been in those roles for a number of years and maybe I don't know I, I have no I'd have to sit and read all the reviews and watch all the you know to have a, a fair view on it but I guess I think she she just caught a whiff of a of a culture or a sort of an attitude that was quite prevalent in a lot of the mainstream media, which was resistant to her work. And she was questioning, I guess, whether yes. that was gendered. So I don't know. Mm. Um, I have a feeling, I have a sense that's that's shifted a bit, but she is producing work in Europe now, so yes. it's hard to know. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That's true. Yeah. Well, back to ghosts. Tell me about the pink fur. I sort of inferred that it was, uh, no pun intended, uh, meant to sort of represent the, the the sort of furrowed brain of your son Oswald. <laughs> I, I'm sure. Am I reading I that right? Or yeah. what was your what was the design or director's um, justification for covering think, him um, in pink fur? Yeah, I I don't know if um, Rosanna, the designer, and Joe have ever sort of explicitly chosen to spell out this is a literal meaning I mean mm. I suppose what I draw from it and the impression I got when I saw the initial reference pictures um, was it it's a, it's a highly domestic cocooning space mm. and um, yeah we, we learn that this house that we're in is on an island sort of surrounded by sea you know a, a boat's ride from civilization and it's sort of this very claustrophobic I guess and ultimately you know it's the kind of place you come in and you take your shoes off and she's yeah. in, my character's in bare feet and and I suppose she's wanting to provide this maternal sanctuary for her son who has spent a great deal of his life away and you know in very heartbreaking circumstances and so it's like the ultimate I mean, it's like mummy sanctuary, yes, like a sort yes, of cocoon, yes, yes. like come back to the womb. It, it does make yeah. it quite sensual in a way that it yeah. often isn't. In yes. the, there's there's a sort of ritual moment when when Father Manders arrives that his yes. shoes are taken off by yes. the by the servant, and the fact that characters sort of wrestle on this on this yeah. furry floor and and walk barefoot on it. Makes I mean, it, I guess it, yeah, and, and also there's an element in the play which feels a bit like a sort of Freudian dream sort of state. I don't know, like so. There's something a yeah. bit. Am I in a dream? Like, is this is this actually happening, or is this these characters like waking nightmares of, mm. you know, their three a.m. <laughs> yes. sort of yeah, yeah, fantasies being played out? So it's felt like we've seen less of you on stage because mm. you've had a couple of children since I saw you last. Yes. Did you have to sort of throttle back on stage work for that? Was it easier to take film and TV jobs? Do you know what? It was a combination of, I guess, um, after Doll's House. I guess there were certain. I did do more TV and film. Certain opportunities came up there. And then a kind of a combination of kids and then caring responsibilities to do with my parents. My my father got sort of quite ill at a particular sort of crux in my life where suddenly you go, oh my gosh, the demands on my time are being, you know, made in a particular... And then the pandemic, of course. So yes. there was a number of years sort of bound up where it just felt like theatre wasn't quite manageable. And, you know, yeah. my parents husband was doing a job in New York and you know so we just yeah it's been quite an intense couple of years of, yes. sort of life pulling me in all sorts of different directions but I am so enjoying being on stage doing this play I'm very just, glad to hear it yeah yeah it's it's really thrilling and um in fact Paul Hilton and I were messaging each other just last night sort of going I'm pinching myself that we're getting to do this every <laughs> night doing this play and you know oh god yeah this space is particularly a happy one to play it's just it's pure theatre do you know yes. what I mean it's it's you haven't got the bells and whistles of technology and it's just people in a room listening to a story and yes yeah again for those who don't know yeah. uh, the Wanamaker Playhouse is is candlelit it's mm. uh, London's only permanently candlelit theatre I believe and the fact that it's built out of wood as well gives it a yes. certain warmth um, yeah. as a as a place to sit in and watch theatre and I imagine to perform theatre yeah do you get a sort of um, more of an emotional payoff fr from stage roles than you do from or you know more satisfaction from them than, than from film roles I would say so I mean only in that you get to play a story in order 
and discover different sort of neural pathways every night or you, you know even now things connect or things drop in in a different way or you go oh god of course it's only five minutes since I've let my son has a disease or you know or various different th- things drop in according to what kind of day you've had how tired you are if you've just done a show that afternoon you know every journey is different and it's really fascinating allowing the emotion to come through as and when it does sort of organically whereas on film there's this sort of yes okay you can repeat it but there's a sort of pressure behind it of going this is the day we're doing the scene you've got to nail it and then tomorrow you're doing something else and it may not be in order and you're doing it compartmentalized so it requires a different set of um tools i suppose but yeah i'd say yeah you get much more of a sort of a a visceral kick, I think, from playing a story like this in one go. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's kind of an unusual Christmas show, isn't it? <laughs> one of one of several on the London scene at the moment. Yes. I mean, who would have thought that you know, come December, we'd be seeing ghosts and the homecoming and Cold War. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. People keep saying, "Oh, that sounds lovely." I come and I say, "Can I just let you know what it's about?" And mm. they're like, "Oh." Then I sort of say, "But it's funny as well." Like, yes. you know, <laughs> it's not all doom and gloom. It's absurd. And yeah. people seem to really enjoy that strange combination. Yeah. Hattie Morahan, lovely to see you again. Thank you very, very much. Lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. Ghosts at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse is on until January the 28th. Let's go to another ad break. In part three, we'll be reviewing Infinite Life at the National. I'm Lenny Henry, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Nancy and Nick, you went to see Infinite Life at the National Theatre. I haven't seen it, but I've been hearing some real raves. Tell me, was it as good as they're saying? Well, I mean, it's sort of it's sort of meditative and fascinating, is how mm. I would describe it. I mean, if you want kind of action and high-stakes drama, then it probably isn't for you. Um, it was interesting. There was a woman sitting on the row that I was on when I went to see it the other night. At the end, I heard her going, so slow, so slow. <laughs> and it is slow. It is very much slow theatre, but I'm glad to say it's only, it's an hour and 45 minutes straight through, which when I heard it was a new Annie Baker, I was like, oh, good God, it's going to be four hours Mm -hmm. and nothing's going to happen because, you know. It's under two hours and nothing happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, which I can handle, totally. So it's set in 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 a kind of a a water fasting facility, like a clinic that people go to, to kind of cleanse their system when they are seriously ill or when they're ill with something that nobody seems to be able to work out or fix. Um, And some people in there are like genuinely, you know, probably going to die from whatever it is they've got and they've kind of run out of options. And it's mostly women. I think there are four or five women, five five women women in the in the cast and one man who we'll talk about in a bit. And they just they just talk. They sit on sun loungers in what it transpires is effectively overlooking a parking lot it's with a, a bakery. You sense this this clinic is not of the highest order, don't you? Yeah. That it was basically a motel. So yeah, they're basically exactly. in the motel parking lot overlooking, as you say, a bakery while they're drinking nothing but water for oh, nine no, exactly. days. Occasionally juice. They do say it's affordable, which suggests in the American healthcare system that it is a bit shit. Yes, mm. and but, there's also the threat of wildfires coming in, isn't there? Yeah, which is, that's a thing. That's yeah. definitely a thing. I was basically gripped. I mean, all they do is just sort of converse. And they don't they don't converse 
very deeply about anything very important, but somehow the kind of undercurrent is very... don't know you just you're just I found myself sort of gripped I mean lots of plays are set in an isolated location aren't they because what it allows for like those kind of intense connections that that mean that people open up more quickly than they might do otherwise with with total strangers but this is done particularly well I think so the I think the chronic illness background adds an interesting facet to the characters and their behavior I think we forgive there's a main character, isn't it? I mean, there's that, it's an ensemble, but there's a main character yeah. called Sophie. Yes. Um, and you can tell me, Nick, because you've got the programme in front of you, yeah. and I forgot to write it down, what, her, what the name Played of the Played by Christina is. Kirk. Christina uh, Kirk. Who is significantly younger than the rest of the, the, the women that she's around. She's, she's 47. Yeah. She's suffering from chronic pain. Yeah. Um, a lot of this is about pain and about living with yeah. pain, and it's about the intersection of emotional and physical pain, I yeah. think, as well. And weirdly, in the case of Sophie, it's about the fact that her pain is it's in her sexual parts yeah so her pain is sexualized yeah it transpires at one point that she's behaved quite badly and i think that we forgive her that behavior much more readily because we're aware that she's in constant pain yes um and certainly for me as well anyway there was a very much there but for the grace of feeling that sort of prevented me from judging her too harshly which i thought was quite interesting yeah there's lots of these sort of left field Mm. uh conversations and you get these sort of snapshots of life which show you in sudden blazing detail uh, how rich but unknowable these women's lives are, mm. how complicated they are. Mm. I got that less with the male character. I mean, I quite enjoyed the way he was portrayed, but maybe because I'm a woman. So he's the only f- male patient, um, and he's not absolutely awful in any very striking way. No. What's so interesting about the way he's portrayed, I think, is that he he is simply totally incurious about the women he's sharing a space with. Yeah. So they all ask each other questions and they're like, so what do you do for work? You know, uh, how old are you? Why are you here? What's it like? You know, and, and then, you know, and as you say, they end up having conversations about these seemingly totally random things in the way that women do. Yeah. You know, you've had a conversation with your wife and she sort of says, oh yeah, but of course that thing happened to her. And you're like, excuse me, I've known that person for 30 years and you've known her for 10 minutes. How did you get that information? It's because of the way that we talk to each other. Um, Not that I'm suggesting that neither of you are capable of doing that, (laughs) but it is very, you know, we do talk to each other in different ways. Yeah. And even the moment when he opens up, if you like, and the opening up is something I'm quite interested in, to Sophie, it's entirely about him sharing his experience, yes. and which of course is 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 I don't want to be a dick about it, but it's worse than hers. He you know does do I mean? quite like, a lot of pain explaining, yeah. doesn't he? And it is a lot Very of yes funny. that his uh, his uh, bowel problems are worse than childbirth. I know exactly. He's a but he's you know his interest in hers is entirely related to the fact that it's how it affects her sex life. Yes, so it, it is notable. I think that the two times he says I don't want to be a dick about it, he is in fact he being is. a dick. About dig it. about it. Um, I mean, he's very well played by Pete Simpson, I think, mm. with a sort of slightly affectless, uh, as you say, incurious yeah. sense. He, he uh, works you know. in fintech, ev- you know, of inevitably. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's one wonderful scene where he's he's just lying face down on a on one of these recliners, but nonetheless dominating and completely skewing the the dynamics of the of the situation that these women. You have see, that I think is evolved. so so interesting as well. Like the way, so the opening up, the opening up I was talking about, like that's done with a very light touch. Like yeah. no one's having kind of those stagey conversations about incredibly important things in the way that people don't have them. Yeah, these are very, they are very light conversations, but they tell each other things that you just would not tell a stranger normally. And it's interesting and it's very striking that 
those conversations more or less halt when he is on the stage. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, the, 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 the shift in the dynamic as he walks from one side of the stage to the other, which is where the sun lounger is that he's aiming for, and they all just stop talking and follow him with their eyes in this slightly bemused yeah. way. You're just like, okay, that's the end of that conversation. That <laughs> yes. won't be happening again. I don't know that I could have borne it for much longer, but yeah. I really, really was just fascinated by it for the one hour and 45 minutes that I was in there. I think Annie Baker is really, really interesting. I, yeah. mean, I think her plays just march to entirely their own rhythm and, and yeah. beat. And I've, I find them hypnotic for that. That's really. a really good um, word. Yeah, they go against so much of what you anticipate from plays, as you mm. say, you know, the, the sort of emotional flashpoints or, or, you know, linear development or anything like that. They just sort of happen. But I, I mean, I thought this was, I thought this was tremendous. Yeah. I thought, I thought the performances were so lovely and understated. Yeah. I particularly liked Mary Louise Burke. She was Eileen, so she's the, the older woman on oh, stage. Oh yeah. She, um, I was going to say, so the physical performances in as much as that, because she's probably got about, I don't know, let's say 38 lines in the whole thing, maybe, yeah. total guess. But she's such a well-rounded character and her physical, she's obviously in, she's very she's very old in this and she's in a great deal of pain. Yeah. And she moves exactly like that. And when she came off the stage, she evidently is not in. Yes. She is not as frail or as, as stiff as that character, but you didn't for one second think that she was going to be, you know, that she was putting it on, if you like. It was just a fascinating couple of hours mm. in the theatre, yeah. I think. I think people should see it. I think people but should see it. But there are definitely people I don't think will like it. Yes. Because it is very, you really do just have to let yourself, you just have to let yourself go into it. Yeah. Two thumbs up from Nick and Nancy. Looks like I'm going to have to go to this. Absolutely. And uh, if uh, you want to go to it, it is on until January the 13th. That's it for this week's episode of the Standard Theatre Podcast. Please do hit follow, leave a comment, tell your friends. Feel free to drop us a line at theatrepod at standard.co.uk. And don't forget to give our previous shows a listen. They include interviews with Patrick Vale, uh, Susan Wacomas, Ian McKellen, Tim Minchin, and many, many more. Thanks as ever to our producer, Rachel Abbott, and we'll see you back here next Sunday. 